Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Excellent. Excellent. Wise choice. I am also doing excellent. It looks like we're unanimous. I think uh, how your day goes has a lot to do with what you decide how it's going to go. You think so? Yep. I think that's most philosophies around the world that agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Barring outside influence. Too bad I'm such a curmudgeon, huh? So anything exciting going on you want to share before we hop into the Q&A for February? You know, I'm partnering up with Sam doing a documentary on like, Paranormal Bigfoot stuff, Sam Kitchen, the guy from Type 471 podcast. Yeah, you've been talking a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't know too much about it, but what can you share with us? Oh, uh, he lost his place in, in the fires in California last couple. Uh, he got burned out two different spots. He's finally getting his uh, insurance settlement, and he's buying a new truck and big travel trailer to go full-time squatching. So when I get free to go do film stuff, I can just go wherever he's at. We got a mobile base right there. He's got all the editing suite and everything right on board. Nice, nice. So that's going to be a countrywide sort of search, or what's that going to uh, look like? I think he's going to be on the West Coast. Okay, cool, cool. You know what, Bobo? I have that trailer of yours in my outbuilding. I still think that uh, you should probably rent that out as a and b as well if you're looking for other things to do with your time. That's a good suggestion, Cliff. I just don't I mean, I, well, I wanted to put it at your museum, and you said no. <laughs> I, I said no on behalf of my landlords, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I guess we're going to I, I don't know. I mean, our, like, listeners, what do you think? Email us. What do you think? Uh, should Bobo <laughs> rent out his trailer as, you know, Bobo's Bigfoot B&B, Airbnb sort of thing? It's kind of no frills, but it'd be kind of cool. It's simple. It is simple. It's a simpler way of life. Yeah. No slide. Well, I have something kind of cool to share, if you don't mind. Uh, there was a sighting on Friday. Uh, a gentleman that uh, a friend of a friend of ours uh, was driving home, or actually driving to Portland from uh, Lincoln City, where he lives. And in the Van Duser Corridor, Highway 18, he passed a big, hairy guy standing next to a stump. And uh, when he looked back, it was gone. But he saw the thing move, so it wasn't the stump. And I heard about it on Saturday, and I wasn't available on Sunday, but on Monday I headed out there, which was yesterday at this point. I headed out there on the 21st, because today is the 22nd when we're recording this. And on the 21st, I went I went out there and poked around for a couple hours and, and found some possible impressions, but it, they're, they're a little vague. I didn't take them home with me or anything. I did plaster in them because uh, there's a couple days of rain in between when he saw it on Friday and when I got there on Monday. But sure enough, man, there's uh, 13, 14-inch impressions in the ground that were the right shape, the right size, just just, just lacking that extra bit of detail that would have made me pour plaster in them and bring them home. But like, what was the like? What was the landscape like? 
Oh man, it's right on the side of the road in the Van Duzer corridor. It is uh, pretty busy, um, but it is it, it's you know coastal rainforest basically the coast range of Oregon, and he got a pretty good look at it. You know as he's driving by, kind of craned his neck around after he passed it, and he said he didn't see it anymore. But kind of kept on going basically. He wasn't, you know, didn't think about reporting it to anybody, didn't want to tell anybody, but he went into my friend's uh, business. Um, uh, friends of mine uh, um, bought uh, the, the boring winery and tap room a couple months ago, a nice establishment just down the street from the museum here. And uh, Melissa and I were driving home from a, a dinner with some other friends of ours down in Troutdale. And we, we were passing the tap room. We say, oh, that, that's their car. Let's stop. They're still there. And we're like five or 10 minutes before closing. you know. So we stopped by and this guy was in there too, friends of theirs. So uh, he kind of shared the story with us uh, a little bit. I went back. Um, it, it wasn't a business time. you know. So I went back with my notebook a day or two later. I think I went back on Sunday and arranged to meet him there. And then I interviewed him and took some notes and all that sort of stuff and went out there yesterday. So that's cool. It's always, yeah. I mean, even, you know, you didn't find anything castle just seeing like how it walked up, how it approached a busy highway, like that sort of stuff. It gives you so much info. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just got done writing up a, um, a review of it or, you know, my, 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 my field notes, I guess, and posted it onto our museum member website, the Patreon page, um, oh. along with some photographs of the footprints or possible footprints in the ground. I mean, you know, even driving home, there's this really cool, quirky, quirky looking bookstore on the side of highway 18 before you go into the mountains and anybody in the area is going to know exactly who, what I'm talking about. The owner's name is Russ. I spoke to him for a while and, and you know, you know, I store, I steered the conversation towards Bigfoot and sure enough, he told me a couple stories of his own. Um, and then he told me, Oh yeah, the guys down this road over here or whatever, about a decade ago, were complaining because they, they had a Sasquatch stealing their eggs, you know, and out of their chicken coops and stuff. So it's, you know, like everywhere else where there's, a couple of Bigfoots roaming around. Everybody's got a story. So it was, it was a good trip though. It was a, it was a nice use of my Monday. Did that guy have any uh, interesting stories when he told you those stories? Oh, that was most of it. I mean, I thought, I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, the people down this one particular road um, who had a lot of chickens, it's kind of a chicken farm. It's like, yeah, they know about them. And the Bigfoot was kind of bugging them for a few months. And they, they have a nickname for it called the, um, the corridor creature because you're right next to the Van Duzer corridor. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, he had a, he had that and he told me some other story. I believe is when he was young, he was out drinking or something with his buddies, like a bunch of friends. And they, they heard some crazy like, noises, vocalizations, and a really horrible stink came by and all the kids left the area and, you know, stuff like that, you know, just the kind of stuff you get from almost anybody who's spent all their lives in rural Oregon. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Not that rare, but so anyway, yeah, that, that's what we got kind of going on. So. Cool. Should we hop into the Q&A? I know that's what everybody's tuning in for. Yep. Well, here we go. The first question. I'll go ahead and take this one, Bobo. You can take the next one, all right? All right. Um, this question is from Sean Hermes. I know that the cave systems in the USA are extremely vast. Do you think that this is where most Bigfoots are hiding? Why haven't there been documentaries exploring that? What do you think, Bobo? Well, they've been seen in caves, and they utilize them. They don't live in them. I mean, you know, I share that story up here in Northern California because the cave system is so vast, and it goes all the way into Oregon, Southern Oregon there on the Northern California border. And people say they probably use those traverse. It's like, why would they walk in pitch black? It makes no sense. But, I mean, to get out of the weather, it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's how our forefathers, you know, our, our ancestry, you know, goes back. Cavemen, I mean, it's a natural shelter. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, our – 
everybody's knowledge of cavemen, the term and the idea that our ancestors used these things as shelters, I think that also feeds the idea that Sasquatches are used in caves. I think it's part of the stereotyping almost in a way. Um, but, but as you pointed, it is completely pitch dark in these caves. And if you have eyes, those eyes, like Sasquatches have eyes. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, eyes gather light, whatever light there is, even nocturnal animals that can quote unquote, see in the dark, they use the light that is available to see. And there is no light in the depths of these caves, so they would not be able to see unless somebody is going to go the extra step and suggest that Sasquatches use uh, echolocation or something like bats or something do. Um, and com- you know, I don't think they use caves for any sort of permanent dwelling or anything like that. I think that they might go in the mouth or a few hundred yards in just to get out of the elements because you know a 48-degree cave might be a lot warmer than the 20 degrees outside in the depths of winter. And as evidence, or I guess I guess lack of evidence for the opposite, is inside of a cave, you don't have wind or, or well, you don't have wind erosion, and you usually don't have much water erosion either. Um, so we should find footprints inside of caves. And foot, those footprints, if Sasquatches are using these caves frequently, those footprints could be decades old. I mean, we found completely dead cave bears. We found Neanderthal footprints in caves. Why is it that we haven't found Sasquatch footprints in caves if this is one of their habitual things that they do? And also what, what you know, all food is, is basically made by the sun at some point or another, even cows, because cows eat the grass and the grass photosynthesizes the sun, you know. So all food essentially comes from the sun on the planet. Where's the food in a, in a cave? You know, you can't subsist on blind cave fish for very long or bats. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of with you, Bobes. I think it's a temporary shelter or um, you know, getting out of the elements or the weather or something. But I don't think it's any long-term uh, dwelling or habitual use in that sort of way. No, but the stories I've heard coming from caves have all been really interesting. And every person I've talked to that's encountered them or I've read or heard on other interviews, the Bigfoots cover their eyes from the light. And just aren't aggressive at all. I've never heard of a big of an aggressive Bigfoot in a cave. Hmm. Now, wasn't there some uh, story from New Mexico about um, one of the local tribes there trapping some Bigfoots in a cave and burning them out or something? Yeah, they told me when I was on the Hickoria Apache Reservation back in 2004 when I had that great my best sighting. I met with the oldest woman on the reservation because she had some stories, and she was telling us back in the 1930s the Bigfoot showed up for the first time since the trading days. And she said that they they had a problem with the Bigfoots until the uh, natives, and I've heard this from people in other tribes in Washington and Montana, and is that and when they got repeating rifles, the balance of power switched. When like the lever action Winchesters and Henrys came out, that then the balance of power, all of a sudden the Indians had you know more strength, firepower than the Bigfoots did. And, so anyways, they uh, hadn't seen him in 60 years, 50 years. And she was telling us that um, when she was a little girl, her grandpa, who was one of the chiefs, medicine men, told uh, her this. And she'd heard the story from other people, but he told her like in depth that um, all of a sudden people were showing up missing around the reservation, like uh, male and female out alone or in pairs were just disappearing. And so they uh, tracked, they ended up backtracking them. To this cave, and it's, it's this big cave up on the mountain right outside of town. 
and they uh, they went in there. They got torches and went down in there like a like a powwow group, you know, like a couple of medicine men and chiefs went in there to try to make a peace treaty with the uh, you know make make peace with the Sasquatches. And they said the Sasquatches were all hunched on sitting on their like they were squatted down, you know, like people do like in uh, the jungle, like native people just squatted down. They had their uh, knees pulled to their chest. Their butts were like an inch off the ground. They weren't sitting like on their on their feet still, but just their you know knees to their chest. And they had their hands over their eyes, like blocking the light. And I remember she always said she goes, "They never spoke. The Bigfoots never spoke." She called them whatever the, I forgot the Apache word for them. She called them that. But I said the Bigfoots. She goes, "Yeah, the Bigfoots. They never spoke." So they came back the next day with an, another treaty offer, and the Bigfoots refused to answer or engage. So they built a huge fire and had a bonfire for three days. When the Bigfoots tried to rush out, they'd shoot at them and drive them back in. And uh, they heard them screaming and hollering for the first day. Then they didn't hear anything. They kept the fires burning for two more days to make sure that they sucked all the oxygen out. And the, they went in there and all four Bigfoots were dead, shot up, and or smoke inhalation, combination, whatever. And that they didn't have uh, Bigfoots there until the 1930s when she was a kid, teenager, or whatever, and uh, they had them come back. Like they hadn't seen them, though, like in, for years and years, and they disappeared again for another 10, 20 years, and they start seeing them again in the 50s and another gap, and then in the 70s, and since the 70s, they've been real consistent. They might vacate the area of somebody that's uh, my brethren as well. Yeah, I mean, if, if they're as rare as we think they are, there wouldn't be like another group just ready to move right in, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. Well, all right, Bobo, you want to hit the next question for us? Question by Carrie Burns. I've only heard of Bigfoot messing with cows, cattle a couple of times, and one was just recently mentioned on one of the latest B&B podcasts. I've heard about them stealing chickens and pigs, etc., but it seems cattle would also be an easy target. Do you recall any stories involving them stealing calves, etc., or killing cattle, or do they somehow know not to mess with them? They know that that's our food, so they don't mess with our food <laughs> No, yeah, that's what, my, of course, Matt Moneymaker <laughs> yeah. said that uh, on a Finding Bigfoot episode. He got a lot of heat about it. He might be right, though. You know, these, these things are that smart. You never know, but I don't know. I, I can't think of any stories off the top of my head of uh, adult cattle being messed with, but I, I've certainly heard something of calves, um, calves going missing, or uh, I think there's a story, I have to dig it out, of somebody seeing one of these things carrying um, a, kind of a newborn calf and and then there's that stuff out in Ohio. It's not a cow, of course, but I, that one guy said that uh, the Sasquatch killed his, his horse, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked to that guy that killed his horse. And then um, that same old woman I talked to on the Patch Reservation, just a couple years, I think the year or two before, they bought a $15,000 colt they were going to start breeding. And they watched two Bigfoots chase it down outside, and the big male snap its neck, and they pulled the hide right off it and took the organs and the hide and took off into the hills. The hideout, that's interesting because I've, I've taken several reports of them skinning deer or people finding weird animal skins like that bear skin from Jimmy J. And right. uh, that sort of like, yeah, it seems that that seems to be one of the things they sometimes do is skinning animals. So it's interesting that you that, that that report came with that detail that might not otherwise be known. But yeah, I hear about them taking cattle once in a while and then, People say they, they just blame it on a cougar or wild dogs or wolves because they, they don't know what else it could be or a bear because it's torn apart. And so they just write it off as something else a lot of the times. But they definitely mess with cattle, though. I, mean, they, I, I hear about them taking full-grown cattle here and there. 
You ever heard of these stories about the milking cows? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that, but I, it's possible, I guess, but it doesn't seem likely. Just because it's improbable doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't put a lot of stock in that stuff, and I can't. I have to double check, but I don't think I've actually received a report of somebody observing this behavior. But I, I've heard it at least twice. Two people have at least told me that I hear they do this, or so and so says that they do this, or something like that. Some vague, you know, third-hand account, if I remember right. Um, but I kind of put that in the same category as braiding horses' manes. Like, why would you? Why would the cow or horse allow something like a Sasquatch to get so close to it? Um, you know, especially when you look at other times when horses freak out in the Sasquatch's presence, you know, it seems to me that a large animal or any animal like a like a cow or a horse wouldn't want a Bigfoot anywhere near it. Why would they? Let alone yank it on the udders for a while, unless they're really good friends. I think that was a Janice Carter, Mary Green thing about them feeding themselves from the cattle teats. Was it? Well, you know, you might be right. Maybe that's where I picked one of these things up. And they might. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's possible. Uh, I don't see it being a common occurrence or, you know, what part of their normal diet. I told you I met Janice, right? No. Or maybe you, did, you just met her recently, right? Like a year or two ago? Yeah. One of these conferences out in Michigan that I did last year. She's a very nice lady. Yeah. And I know we, we had a great conversation and, um, and, you know, we, at the end of it is like, she knows that I don't agree with her about Bigfoots. And I know that I don't agree, you know, we don't agree with each other about Bigfoots. And we left it at that. And, we're, and I would say we're on good terms. I, I just love that when people who are, who I think are just incorrect, walk away saying, yeah, I think you're wrong too. That's cool. What else is going on? And, and we're just on good terms. I called her, I called her once, actually twice to have her on the podcast. She said she would like to come on sometime. But oh, uh, awesome. Um, yeah, she didn't pick up, and and it's like calling, you know, uh, some, you know, she did, her uh, voicemail was full or wasn't set up or something like that, so I couldn't leave a message. I forgot that she wanted to come on. I haven't tried to reach out to her for months. I should reach out again. So, Janice, yeah. if you're listening, give me a call. We'll book you. It'll be nice to hear her perspective, whether I agree with it or not. You know, so I don't mind listening to other people's perspective. Other uh, opposing points of view don't scare me. Huh. Okay, the next question is from Richard Edwards. Why do professional trackers and or dogs have so much trouble tracking a Sasquatch? Well, there's a couple, we don't know, of course, but there's some ideas. They only, they only track what they're trained to track. That's problematic, yeah. That's it really a big is. part of it. And they're also afraid of them. I think they're that same innate fear. Some dogs go at them, and those dogs don't live long. But the majority of dogs cower, whimper, and go away. Or they might bark at them and... You know, bark but not close the difference, bark from camp or bark from their yard. But rarely do they go after them, like, you know, tear off into them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it might be some sort of pheromonal thing. I mean, I, who knows what it is, what, why. But, but dogs obviously can smell or sense these things somehow, probably sense of smell. That's how dogs kind of inter- interpret their world. Um, uh, and, and, like, if they smell one of these things, they know that that's weird and unusual and potentially dangerous or something. And I, I like it when I hear stories of dogs getting in between their owner and the Sasquatch. That's a good dog. You know, when we filmed that Finding Bigfoot episode in Texas and we got those guys to come out and, you know, they, they trained it on primate sense. And they got – I don't know where they got the hairs. And It was chimpanzee uh, hay, hay from a bedding area. Is that what it was? At a zoo. Yeah, they've got contacts, I guess. So they have a bed, you know, so hay from a bedding area of a chimpanzee. And the, and, um, and this is another monkey, too, bedding that they use. But um, they, they train those dogs on that. And I, don't, I mean, I don't know how long you have to train dogs. I'm not a dog trainer. Um, but it seems that 
you have to be spe- they have to be specifically tuned in to a certain kind of smell for them to do that sort of thing. It's not like getting you know raccoon dogs out in the woods, you know, who have been trained to deal with raccoons and other varmints all their life. This is kind of a special thing, and it seems that dogs are not universally, but pretty close. Uh, generally afraid of these things, or at least know that Sasquatches could kill and eat them or something. But yeah, so it's, it's been long been noted that dogs um, kind of have an aversion to Sasquatches, but you know, monkey didn't. No, it's, I think she played, I mean, I've told this story before, but I swear she played with one one day on Bluff. Was Creek. that the one that you saw at Laos camp or? I didn't see it. I mean, I saw, well, I saw that tall, that was my only daylight setting was earlier that day. That was that tall one. But I think mm-hmm. it might have been the one that was smaller than me that I saw the next year. I think I'm just guessing. I'd, I'd guess that was the one that was playing with Monkey. Is that the one that looked like Bart? Yeah. On the, the night. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's just call I'm, that I'm one g- Bart. I think he'd be honored <laughs> to have a Sasquatch named after. <laughs> Sasquatch. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So, anyways, um, in case someone hasn't heard this story ad nauseum, uh, I was walking back out of Bluff Creek, coming from down downriver back to Laos Camp. Because everyone always goes up towards the film set. I always go the other way down below. And I was coming back, and this is after having rock throws and clacks and having a visual glimpse in the daylight. Uh, coming back in, I got bluff. we got bluff charged by one in the brush, and Monkey just took off after it. And I heard, I could hear her like doing her like play barking stuff. And I was like, get out. I was screaming. I was terrified she was just going to get killed right then. And I'm, you know, yelling at her, and I'd see her come out. She'd come out of the thick brush, out into the opening, the old road bed, and she'd have her butt low, like, and her tongue hanging out, like, with a big smile, panting real hard, like when dogs are playing when they're happy. And she, you know, scat, scat running around with her butt low, and she goes running back in, like, play barking, and, and then there's all this tearing up noise, and whatever it was, they were right around each other. I think, you know, they were right. I mean, she was definitely the thing was in uh, distance to grab her and kill her if it wanted to, and Monkey just played with it for a for a while, so I, I'm guessing it was that small one I saw the next year. Hmm. I guess uh, that's when we needed the monkey cam when we put a camera I, on her and let her loose. Dude, oh, that would have been epic. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's an aspect to this question that we haven't addressed really, and that's something that I think is interesting and more subtle. The first part of this question is why do professional trackers and or dogs have such trouble tracking a Sasquatch? Yeah, so I'd like to address that a little bit. As far as professional trackers go, um, a lot of them haven't been put on a Sasquatch trail, honestly. Um, but the few that have um, have been brought in to see if somebody else was lying. Like that guy uh, was a what was his name? It escapes me. But the guy was brought in to check out the Freeman site and, and look, take a look at those prints. And his objections to the footprints had it seemed to me had more to do with his being familiar with human prints and not Sasquatch prints. Like uh, Krantz mentions this in his book, and I wish I had a copy in front of me. But um, some of the things he said, like, well, the, the the stride or the step length didn't really change when it was going uphill versus down. So, well, that's because in a human, it would be extraordinarily difficult to continue that sort of step length. But in a Sasquatch, these things are ridiculously strong. They're not humans, and they probably wouldn't change that dramatically going uphill versus down the way they move. Um, and there's an, and Krantz again mentions this and addresses, I think all 10 points point by point in his book. So if you're interested, check out the Bigfoot Sasquatch evidence book written by Dr. Grover Krantz. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's a fantastic read anyway. I, I would hope that everybody 
who listens to our podcast has read that book. That one and Dr. Meldrum's book and Dr. Bennernagel's book are the three most important. Um, but anyway, uh, it, professional trackers look for are really good at human tracks, but Sasquatches are not humans and their footprints are not hu- very human-like in a lot of ways. And the objections of like, why is it that you know the, the, the weight is put too far back on the foot as opposed to the toes and the step? Well, it's because they're not humans and they walk different. Their foot is built different than ours and therefore the footprints would be different than ours. And I think that's something that really throws professional trackers for a loop in this sort of way um, is that they're looking for human prints because that's what they expect them to be, but they're not. No, uh, when I was at, went to that spot in Montana last year, last uh, March, about a year ago, and for that trackway, before I got there, the the head tracker for the border for the uh, border patrol, the guy he tracks like drug runners and illegal immigrants, that's that sort of stuff. Um, the head tracker guy, he came out to that spot and he tracked the Bigfoot. It was interesting. I didn't get to walk with him, but the woman who lived there did. Um, her and her boyfriend walked with the guy when he was walking around they, and he told like oh this is where it started to run you can see the step length increase and then it hit this ice patch and slipped and he read so much into it and he was like he's like i can't say you know because of my job i can't say what i think it is but he just kind of gave him the head nod like yeah this is not a person yeah you know and greg may who's another um tracker dash uh survival dude or whatever he taught at um washington state university i believe um he tracked one of the freeman prints i think the 90 90- I know he's on the scene in 87, both in April and in November. I think he tracked the 91 trackway as well. And he followed these things for miles, and he was very impressed with them. So. Seven miles. Uh, well, don't know, actually, because uh, if I may, uh, it's called the Seven Mile Trackway because it, it was by Seven Mile Bridge. Oh, is that, I thought it was Seven Mile Tracks. No, no, no. That, that, that's a confusing point with that track. Uh, the 1991 tracks is it was found. They were initially found, I think, on Seven Mile Bridge and on Seven Mile Road um, down by the Mill Creek. But uh, it's actually there was a few, uh, two or three miles at least. But it wasn't a seven mile trackway. It was called the Seven Mile Trackway because of where it was found. Well, one of those old timers told us when we were there uh, at the town hall. I remember them saying specifically they tracked it seven and a half miles. Is what he told me. Maybe he did. I don't know. That might have been. Uh, David Bean, gentleman I had an opportunity to interview a number of years ago. So that sounds like um, the really old guy, right? He had a handprint and something. A couple, yeah, of I think I think I'm pretty sure this guy totally tracked it for a seven and a half miles. Yeah, he was a cool guy. He, he I, I interviewed him. I have a 45 minute taped interview with him or recorded interview. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Have you found a place to uh, listen to those real the real interviews you just got? Oh, I haven't even talked about that on the air yet. Nobody knows about that. Um, I guess I can butt in real fast and talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the what's left of the collection of a Bigfooter from the 60s and 70s has found its way to the NABC, the North American Bigfoot Center. Um, and uh, it has been donated to the museum. Um, this guy's name was uh, Charles C. Edmonds. Um Chuck Edmonds. Um, you can look him up in John Green's books, um, and there's a few other sources that cite him, but not a lot. Frustratingly little, actually. He is best known as the artist who uh, drew the handprint on the outside of the building in uh, that 1962 Fort Bragg incident where the Sasquatch was around and, um, and hit the outside of the house. And there was a handprint that somebody traced. And then uh, this guy took the tracing and, and drew the hand. He was an art teacher down in Ashland. 
he drew the hand and compared it to the human print. And yeah, it's a fantastic situation. Um, in fact, coincidentally enough, talk about synchronicity. For the last couple of months, Dan Perez, Daniel Perez in his newsletter has been digging deep in there um, into that particular sighting and publishing some new information about it. Um, and so I told Daniel and he flipped his lid, man. He's all about this and uh, really, really excited about it. He and David Murphy has been, have been digging in. Um, so, yeah, and uh, in, in the collection of stuff, along with the recordings that you mentioned, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, is the original handprint art, which is rad. That's something I've been looking for for two and a half, three years now, specifically for that. And it just fell into my lap because uh, the, his daughter, Chuck Edmonds' daughter, came into the museum um, like a week and a half ago and started talking to us and said that we, she would love it if we could house his materials and give it a place of honor, which is what we do with all historic collections, of course. Um, yeah, but there's also a, a another handprint not a tracing, but a, a Xerox copy of a handprint that had been colored in. And I have to assume at this point that that is the original tracing of the hand on the outside of the building. But again, it's a Xerox copy of it. And it's also smaller than 11 inches from the, the, the butt of the palm to the tip of the fingers. Um, so it's, it, it seems that it was maybe taken and, and shrunk down to fit on an, 11, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Because I know that Chuck Edmonds created his piece of art and the actual size. And there's a bunch of other odds and ends in the collection as well. Um, a really interesting series of photographs of the investigation into uh, a long-term witness thing, I guess, in the early 60s. Uh, maybe 62, I think it is. It's hard to say because there's no dates on there. Um, in the Lebanon area, um, Lebanon, Oregon, down there, uh, kind of, you know, east of Ashland. And through that, I have some contact information. I, I, obviously, I spoke to his daughter at length. I went over to her home and talked to her for a couple hours. Um, I have, uh, I, I briefly spoke to his son um, on the phone. I'm going to try to arrange a, uh, an interview with him because Apparently, like what, what his daughter told me is like during the summer, all all my friends got to go to Disneyland. I had to go to Bigfoot spots because my dad was a Bigfoot nerd. It's like, oh, aren't you lucky? I think you won. I've been to Disneyland. I'd rather go Bigfooting. Yeah. So uh, I've, I've got some other loose ends to tie up, not the least of which is a collection of reel to reel recordings. There's probably about eight or ten reel to reel recordings uh, from the 60s that I don't know what in the world's on them. Although, although uh, the outside of the boxes have um, a little bit of information. Sometimes I can't read them because it's so old and been scratched off or, but a, a couple of them are really intriguing. Um, for example, I'm pretty confident I have the original recording of the witnesses who lived in that Fort Bragg house. Um, uh, the names escape me right now, but it's, that's because I'm my, my mind's somewhere else. Yeah, so I have a recording. Uh, a Bud Jenkins, I think his name is. Um, original recording of him. I can't verify it because I haven't heard it yet, and I don't want to say what I have until I hear it. Another one is labeled uh, um, "Prospector who was kidnapped." And I'm thinking, could that be Albert Osman? I don't know yet. I haven't listened to it. And there's a bunch of stuff like a new, uh, radio radio programs that talked about Bigfoot and who knows what I have. I, oh, I know that um, his uh, son and daughter-in-law, now daughter-in-law, I think it was a girlfriend back then, saw a Sasquatch. I was told by the daughter, I believe, that uh, 
Chuck interviewed them about their sightings, and he also cast a footprint there. But that footprint is nowhere to be found, although I did have access. I, uh, I was given one, and I, I photographed the other. Uh, I had access to the two original footprints from the 1963 Lewis River um, situation where Chuck was a fo- was following up on a sighting on the Lewis River by the train tracks over there, and um, he was there a couple days later and cast some footprints. So really interesting stuff has come the way come my way in the NABC. I totally forgot to mention it at the top of the show. But That's cool. I mean, I can't wait. Dude, if you got an Albert O interview, that'd be insane. Well, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if it's just a recording that was dubbed off of John Green's or Renee Hindens or somebody like that. Or did Chuck actually track down Albert Osman and speak to him? I, I don't know yet because I, I don't have a reel-to-reel player. Um, Tom Powell said that he has act, he might be able to borrow one and he'll know by the middle of this week. Um, so tomorrow I'll start poking him about that. Um, and because nobody makes reel-to-reel audio players and recorders anymore. They stopped making those in the 90s. So I'm trying to track one of those down that, that actually works. And, you know, they're pretty expensive on eBay and all that stuff. Some local guy, one of these vintage electronic shops that fixes things, he has one for sale for $450 here in Portland. But gosh, that's so much money. Um, but I don't know. Hopefully I don't have to go that route. Uh, hopefully I can just borrow one or find a cheaper one or get one donated or something. I don't know. Uh, the, I guess that's here's an opportunity. Anybody have one they want to give to the museum? Because I guarantee this won't be the last time we use them. Somebody else has reel-to-reel stuff out there that they probably want to donate at some point. So, Could that be such anyway. a cool – because you're kind of a museum. Like that would be so cool to have 1960s and 70s interviews from reel-to-reel just playing live in your – I guess it would wear out pretty fast, right? Yeah. You know, but honestly, what I plan to do is I plan to uh, play these once. I want to set it up. Put an, uh, you know, use the headphone jack and plug it into my Pro Tools system on my computer, play it once, make it digital, and then never touch those again. Because audio tapes, whether you're talking about cassette tapes or reel to reel or eight tracks, any of these things, they wear out over time. You know, magnetism gets to them or just they wear out. You start playing them too much, they start getting scratched and they actually degrade and disappear over time. So it's so important. For anybody who has any of this stuff out there to digitize it because digital files are just zeros and ones, man. They never go away. But these audio, these magnetic tapes, they do go away. You know, that's why it's so great that, you know, uh, Sasquatch Archives on YouTube and stuff is doing all this work and digitizing all those films and audio recordings and whatnot. I just cannot emphasize how important that is for these historical artifacts to be digitized. And plus, they can be shared more easily as well. Yeah, like um, just yesterday, Todd released a new one on the archives about Deputy Sheriff Charles Edson from the Siskiy County Sheriff's Department who shows on this interview from 1979 on TV, he's talking about that he brings out this big, like looks like a 17-inch print that he cast in 1952. No way. Yeah. No way. I didn't know. Oh, that's the guy up in Bellingham, isn't it? No, Siskiyou County. Oh, maybe it was. Oh, you said Siskiyou County. Okay, I've taken the Bellingham cop. Maybe he was Bellingham, and I just misheard him or something. Yeah, because that's the only because he was looking into Bigfoot stuff around Ruby Creek time, like forty eight or whenever that was. He went and he went up there, and he, I know he cast prints in BC, and and I knew there was a police officer up in Bellingham that cast a number of footprints when John Green was just getting going on this, and of course, no one knows what happened to his stuff at all. No, um, I think this guy was Siskiyou County because the, the only thing that sucks is that he claims he got this good picture and it looks like it's a total Ivan Marks. 
Oh, really? That's unfortunate. Yeah, but and he claims he took it. I mean, I can see that getting a fake picture, and you know, you just pass along going, "Well, look at this picture." And, you know, you did, but when you claim you took it, then there's no ambiguity. If it's fake, then you're a hoaxer. Yeah, he's definitely Siskiyou County. Um, I'll, have to go, I'll have to go double. That's on the Sasquatch archives right now. Yeah, it just came out yesterday. YouTube page. And, and uh, I just saw what I uh, on there too. I just saw it came out uh, came out right before that was the Matt Moneymaker 1994 sightings interview. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Seeing young Matt. Uh huh. When he's a young whippersnapper, just barely starting out. Yeah. No, I guess I, he'd been doing it for ten years at that point. What am I thinking? You're right. Yeah, he found his prints. I think in eighty something, mid eighties, eighty four, eighty six, or something like that. I just pulled up that. Uh, and I'm looking at the cast right now. Uh, okay, well, should we should we link to that or something? Or I will, we can put so it in the I, show notes or something. I don't want to start talking about it too. Oh yeah, you got. You're going to definitely be into it. Um, yeah, I'll be into it. You can blow it up and freeze frame it and check it out closer. But it's interesting looking print. But um, so let's see. Let me get back to the next. Yeah, sorry, everybody listening. You're just hanging out with Cliff and Bob. We get a little distracted sometimes. Question from Lorna Duarte. Just a question about Bigfoot teeth. Do they have large canines like chimps? Not usually. People always report almost always big blocky teeth like a gorilla or not like a gorilla, like an orangutan. And, but a lot of people do report a pronounced eye tooth. Like we have, uh, I used to have pretty pronounced eye teeth too. But uh, you do hear like people say like a boar tusk once in a while. But generally speaking, it's just like human teeth. Maybe the little the males especially have a more pronounced uh, eye tooth, like canine canines, but not not like fangs. Yeah, I've, I have a couple report. One one report in particular from Arizona outside of Flagstaff. Um, I think they saw him on the side of the saw a Sasquatch on the side of the road and it turned around and it ran its tongue across its teeth, um, which you couldn't do, of course, if these things had big pronounced canines. Um, now, of course, having these protruding canine teeth might be a sexually dimorphic trait, like uh, basically dependent on size, which would indicate that the males tend to have them because males and primates get bigger than females and primates. Um, so, yeah, they might it might be a sexually dimorphic trait. So these really big Sasquatches that um, are sometimes reported to have large canines that might be a function of sexual dimorphism, but it also might be a function of fear in the observer. I think that we need to leave a lot of room for that. But by and large, 90 plus percent, I mean, I, I'm going to say almost almost every report, there's a small handful of reports that might show this, but most reports have just like human-like teeth which uh, I think kind of says something about them, you know, not that they're necessarily human, but they are human-like and they might be hominins, you know, because Paranthropists, for example, or Australopithecines, they didn't really have these either. Um, Neither did, you know, Heidelbergensis or any of the other hominins. Um, Now, humans, of course, have a little bit of a protrusion in their canines. You can look in the mirror and look for yourself. So it makes sense that maybe the big ones, maybe they protrude a little bit further. But for the most part, human-like squarish teeth the canines don't seem to be there yeah yeah it, and i'm sure when they have like more pronounced canines that utter freakiness of running into this giant ape man in the woods those you know more pronounced canines would turn into fangs in the imagination of in the state of mind of terror yeah i keep thinking about that uh, the kid in alaska that we did that uh, he's not a kid anymore he's a young man now of course but uh, what was it? what was his name osh Oh, yeah, I was going to call his mom. I, I, st- I still got her number. I was going to call her last week. I, I've been meaning to call her and get an update on him. 
he was obviously scared out of his out of his wits. Of course, he wouldn't even want to get out of the car when we were filming with him because he was so scared. But um, he said, "Oh, these things had big monster fangs and whatnot." And that's why I think that it might have something to do with the fear level of the observer itself, um, turning these into, into some sort of monster that they they kind of look like, but really aren't. All right, so let's go to the next question from Ryan Patrick. Have you ever heard of any conflict between bears and Sasquatch? Do they fight or mainly avoid each other? Well, you have a couple stories about that, but before you go, I think they mainly avoid each other because humans tend, I mean, not a lot of animals fight except for humans, you know? I mean, the other ones tend to avoid each other because even the smallest injury could be life-threatening, you know, a broken bone or deep laceration or something like that turning into an infection. Most animals won't risk it. Um, they don't have hospitals and doctors and bandages and whatever. Most animals just won't risk it unless there's their life is on the line for starvation or some other reason or territorial reasons. So, yeah, I know. I know. Squatches the big male squatches will feed and hunt black bears, and I've heard a lot. He's of not even juveniles. I remember on the, um, the in Queens. Oh yeah, yeah. About that. Yeah, the Queet story. I don't know. Well, there's a, there's Robert Alley's book, uh, Raincoat Raincoat Sasquatch from Alaska, where he details the the big, um, the big male ten foot, Bigfoot throwing rocks and driving out the huge grizzly male grizzly that was in the clam bed area on the beach. Yeah, I think that uh, like Bigfoots and uh, grizzly bears, I think would have a problem sometimes. You know, like, for example, one of the behaviors of grizzly bears is uh, when they kill an elk, they might eat a little bit of it. But apparently what they do, grizzly bears, they leave the elk out there for the flies to lay eggs on. And then they repeatedly visit it over the next couple of weeks to eat the maggots, um, which is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You know, um, I'm not sure if they plan that ahead or if it just works out well for them. But what, a, what an ingenious strategy, because maggots are just ever producing and they're highly nutritious. They're supposedly pretty delicious. I've had a couple in my time. They weren't that bad. Um, I could see how a Sasquatch doing the same thing, like letting the grizzly kill the elk or the deer or whatever, and then visiting the, the corpse. If he doesn't time that right, he could run into the grizzly bear. Um, but then, you know, they're smart enough just to leave the area and come back later. Yeah. Should I tell that story of the Queet story real quick? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think I think we have time for that. Go ahead. So this, uh, he was the chief of police up there for the tribe, and he was out elk hunting he was way up the queets river way way up you know like 25 miles or something it was sun was coming up it was starting to get you know starting to get light it was still dark in the woods but you know it's getting light on the gravel bar and there was a kind of a misty haze coming up off the water and he's looking glassing up the river and he uh starts seeing a bunch of looks like a herd of elk coming down and it ended up being about 30 to 35 Bigfoots walking down the river bar, like all different heights and 30 to 35. Yeah. Walking down in the, in the uh, fall that he said that they they were heading to Lone Mountain on the coast. And they had like a, like a powwow there where all the Bigfoots get together in the fall and the spring, every six months they'd get together. And in the springtime is when they decide when um, if you didn't show up, that meant you were dead. And so, like, if you were like a male that had this territory, such and such creek drainage, you know, flowing into this such and such river, like that's your zone from that 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 uh, confluence, you know, on back up into the headwaters area. That's all your zone. That, that that's how they kept from fighting with each other. But anyway, so kind of a lot of supposition there, don't you think? 
Uh, he said that's that's just uh, probably, but it could be true. I mean, I, I don't know. I, yes, it is a lot of supposition, but they they might have good reason for thinking that. I don't know. But uh, Fair enough. anyways, the same guy was out hunting. It was getting before dark, and he saw a um, huge bear, and he shot it, and it wasn't a great shot, and the thing, you know, roared and ran off wounded, and he tracked it until it started getting dark, and he was like, oh, man, it got, it got dark. So he slept out, just, you know, curled up underneath a, a tree and slept and got up the next day, and then he tracked it the whole next day. He didn't catch up until, until sunset the next night, and the sun was going down. It was dark in the woods kind of. And he's hearing this bear roaring and moaning and roaring and moaning. And he said it was a huge bear, like 550 pounds easily, like as big as a black bear gets, basically. And he's like, what's going on? He was kind of spinning around in circles. And he realized there was sh- shadows and shapes moving. And he got his, uh, looked through his rifle scope and looked down in there. And he realized it was the adolescent Bigfoots that lived near the, the uh, village, the Queech village that he'd see all the time. There was about eight or nine of them, ten of them, something like that, circling this bear, and they'd run in and just pound it like they'd they'd just take a hammer fist and just come down and smash it in the back and the haunches, and they'd also come up and like just jam their fingers like uh, I've heard this from other, I've heard this several times that they use their fingers like Wolverine, the the comic book character that like has those claws come out of his hand and he sticks them in like that. They use their hands like like big daggers or whatever, like they can stick them in and then they'll rip and tear and hunk, tear out a hunk of flesh and hair, hair with it. You know, as they fur, they'll just grab a handful of meat and just tear it off. And that's what they were doing to this thing. And he watched for about two minutes. This go, or I can't, uh, it was long, maybe it was 10 minutes. I can't remember exactly, but all of a sudden the leader of the side, these were all six to seven footers. He said mostly like six, six and a half foot. But there was a big seven-footer was in charge, like teenager. And that he gave like a whistle cry, and they all just ran in and mobbed it once and just all came in and hammer-punched it and just beat it to death in like, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. The thing was just pounded to death. That'd be hard to watch. I know. I'd feel bad for the bear. I'd be scared out of my mind. They might do it to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, he said he crept out of there. He said, that, he said before they – he said because he knew once they uh, once they quit focusing, all their attention was on him. They'd have their alert back up. They'd sense him right away. So he, he got out of there and he hiked for a while in the dark. And then when he figured he was far enough away, he curled up and slept and had no problems. <laughs> what is far enough away from that? <laughs> Minnesota? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Okay, question, Barb Gerard. How do you keep safe in wilderness, particularly bear and cat country, from predators? I've done some off-grid camping, but have a gun with me within reach. My concern is a personal safety issue. I don't really go to grizzly country all that much. And I usually, I, if I'm in grizzly country, I'm usually carrying bear spray. Yeah, bear spray in grizzly country. I mean, I, don't, I have a firearm or two, but I don't really bring them. I, I might bring them if I'm alone um, out in the woods or... Uh, if I'm with, with if I'm with Sochi, that my dog, because uh, I have the good sense to back away from a, a bear or a mountain lion, but I don't think my dog does, and I would hate to have her disappear because of something like that. So, but I don't I don't really carry sidearms or anything like that in the woods for the most part. Um, maybe in some circumstances I might, 
Um, like I, I think nowadays if I went, no, that's not even true. I'd probably have the, the, the gun on me in my backpack somewhere instead of on my side. If I went to like the, you know, alone to the PG site or something, because there's a lot of mountain lions there. There's just a ton of mountain lions there. So, but at the same time, maybe I wouldn't, I don't know. I've been going there for so many years alone um, without any sidearms anyway. I think bear spray would probably take care of darn near anything, including weird tweakers and, and dangerous people in the woods as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the best thing to do is don't do what we do. You should go with friends. Um, you should go with somebody else because if something happens, something goes sideways, you can die out there. And it's not the animals. That's really the danger. Um, it's 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 yourself. Um, of all the dangerous situations I've been in the wo- in the woods, the vast majority of them, like 99 plus percent of them, I put myself there. It wasn't an animal. You know, I've seen some animals in the woods and that, that one bear that, you know, I remember from with Tommy Emmero and that was a lot of fun. That bear wasn't that cool. Didn't want us there. Um, but for the most part, I put myself in danger. So that's why it's a good idea to go with somebody else. But as long as you, you, you know, you're, you keep your wits about you and you're with somebody else, you tell people where you're going, um, you're probably pretty safe for the most part. You know, you're not food unless the the mountain lion or whatever is in a starvation situation, in which case I'm sure I look delicious. <laughs> You've told me that on several occasions. <laughs> Classic. And yeah. of course, Bobo, I'm, I'm deer sized. You're not, you're much larger than deer size. What do you do? Baby elk. Um, I used to carry a samurai sword. True. Well, Bob Saget got it for you. <laughs> I had him before that one too. And then that, that was to get around the law in national parks. I go to Redwood National Park. Um, that, I, I only carried it at night too because I didn't want to run into like hikers in the day with it. But um, then I found <laughs> out that was I found out that was illegal in California, anyways. So it's just about as bad as having a gun. So, but I, I always carry now. I got a little teeny North American Arms, the tiniest little twenty-two five-shot revolver. You know, that little teeny 22. I got that. I carry that for, well, for tweakers and then for mountain lions. It's more, I wouldn't think I'd kill a mountain lion with a little 22 Derringer, but it's so loud. I think it would scare the, just scare them away. Well, and aren't cats, you know, mountain lions, et cetera, uh, aren't they real sensitive to pain? I've, I've heard that before. I haven't never tested it out, you know, you know, or anything like that. But I, I, like bears, I don't think that. They, they might even not notice a whole lot if you shot them with a 22 it might piss them off um but i think a cat might actually it's turn its tails and run you know yeah if that was the case but once they once they once they latch on and go for the kill that's when cats are real dangerous i've often thought that i wouldn't even know a cat was on to me until it was literally on me because they attack from behind and try to grab on like they they sink their claws into you and then try to sink their teeth into the, the base of your uh you know your brain stem there in your in your in your neck from behind, I mean, try to sever the, the spinal cord. So uh, I've often thought, like, why carry a gun? Because by the time a cat's on me, it's pretty much too late. Yeah, I don't really worry about it too much. I mean, if I was living in grizzly country, I'm sure I'd have a different attitude. Or if I was where there's polar bears, oh yeah, I'd, de- I'd definitely have something large caliber. Right, right. Well, here, let's go on to the next question here. Um, this one's from Jeremy Morris. Have researchers ever tried to use a Bigfoot decoy to possibly see what happens like duck hunters use their decoys? Yes, they have. Tom Shea. Tom Shea has done that, and he got a lot of weird things going on. Some footprints in the area, some food stolen, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm sure Tom's listening. Um, And Tom, if you're listening, let me know if I'm missing anything here. But I know that uh, 
they haven't got no photographs or anything like that, but every indication um, showed that at least one of these things in that particular area was at least curious about it. And actually, forgive me, Tom, for not remembering exactly, but I think they found it torn, not torn apart and destroyed, but torn down one time when they went into the area. Uh, so it's at least been tried with some interesting results. Um, that's the only one I know of. We did I can't imagine Virginia. bringing Murphy out to the woods, though. So We did it in Virginia. In Virginia? Yeah, we had the squatch with the tape recorder oh. screaming and the glowing red yeah, eyes. Yeah, that was a plywood cutout, though. That, I don't think that's going to fool a Bigfoot. But maybe it would from a distance. <laughs> yeah, but we've done it. We've done it like uh, back in the mid-2000s. We were trying it out up in the Redwoods. And I always thought it would be, you know, more productive. You know, I always thought it would, it never worked for us. We never did it long enough, I think, to get an accurate sense of if it could really work or not. But and a lot of people are afraid of getting shot while putting it on. Because if someone saw, if someone saw you, that you, you could get shot wearing one of those ghillie suits. Yeah, that might be an interesting thing to do is uh, if you go bigfooting and just in ghillie suits to see what happens. But like you're saying, that's kind of taking your life in your own hands, to be fair. Yeah, you are. I don't think that's a good idea. I would strongly recommend against it, actually. But it would be interesting. Like, if you had a, a 20-square-mile area where you were completely confident nobody with guns was going to be, well, yeah, maybe that's worth a shot. But still, is it worth a shot literally? Right. Because that's what it might come down to. Well, should we go to the next one? Yeah, I think so. Chad Marlin, if that's your real name. Cool name. Um, I'm a railroader. Knowing what I know about animals using the path of least resistance and trains that cut through the deepest and darkest forests, have you all received sightings from train operators? Also, these trains come equipped with a DVR on the front of the engine. So has there ever been a, any video footage of a Bigfoot captured by a train DVR? I know there's, there's, uh, I've known some engineers that have seen them on occasion, for sure, uh, but I don't know of any video of it. No, I don't know any videos either of that. Um, although I have a group of train guys that come into the museum every once in a while. I've seen them around town three or four times. Um, I, I met them actually when I was uh, meeting with the landlord at a local pub, uh, kind of going over the lease for the museum, actually. And they came up to me and said, are you that one dude? And it turns out I was that one dude. So they started sharing their Bigfoot stories with me. And uh, of the four guys who were there, I think three of them have a, had a, had observed Sasquatches from the train on the job. Um, and they've come in the shop since then. I was very careful to write down their accounts and put dots on the map and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And for whatever it's worth, anybody in the Portland area, it's uh, it, everything always happens within a few miles of the Eagle Creek area. The one, uh, not the Eagle Creek down by Cicada, by the way, the Eagle Creek, um, the, that trail up there on, in the gorge, um, kind of by Bonneville and that general area. The same, the same Eagle Creek where that giant fire started a couple years ago when those moronic kids were throwing fireworks on the trail and started the fire that destroyed a ton of stuff. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's the area. And they've all three, I think, of the sightings that were reported to us by those train dudes um, came from that one area. Yeah, we had Amron Twitchell on here. He's a train conductor. and he. Uh, oh, the, of course, yeah. The, the route he drives, he picked because it goes through Squatch Territory and he gets to do it at night. So he said if there's everyone, he'll have it on video and he'll, take a, he'll make a copy of it. That'd be rad. Okay. Well, the next question is from Lisa uh, Losalento, I think. Maybe it's Localento, but I think I'm going with Losalento. 
What are your thoughts on the three-toed footprints that were discovered in the 60s and again more recently? Crocodiles. Yeah, fakes. Um, they had that Honey Island Swamp Monster stuff. That was a fake. Um, M.K. Davis discovered the actual fake boot sort of artifact, artifact that made those. It was an alligator um, foot kind of glued onto some boots or tied onto some boots or something attached to it. Anyway, um, so that those are fake. And as far as uh, the, the – I remember the other three-toed big one was um, Boggy Falk. Creek. Yeah. Falk, exactly. The Falk stuff. Maybe real, maybe not. Hard to say. But that doesn't mean – and, of course, there's a whole slew of four-toed prints as well. But the thing is um, Sasquatch feet – are very, very bendy. And there are many cases when not all five digits register. So if you're missing like a pinky or one of the middle toes or something, it's not a big deal. Their feet, are, their, their toes are probably about as long as your fingers and almost as bendy. Um, so it, it's not beyond, this, beyond imagination that not all five digits register. Um, if there's three toes and they're equally spaced across the front, then I, I would say fake. Really, because what other what animal has three toes? I mean, tridactyl whatever's, you know, okay, Yoda does. Gotta remember Yoda. Birds and stuff, and they have four, I guess, really, because there isn't there one behind. But as far as mammals go, you're looking at five digits all the time. Five digits. Whether you're talking about, you know, dolphins or humans or sasquatches or whatever, there are basically five digits. And like horses, you know, hooved hooved animals, ungulates like that, they've got the toes too, but they're just in different configurations. Dogs, all that. The toes are there in different configurations. We're talking five digits though, all the time. And there's always a chance that maybe there's an accident, one was removed or something, but I most likely if there are three digits across the front and all equally spaced, um, like they quote unquote should be, um, I, I would say those are probably hoaxed or misidentifications. Yeah, but not yeah. Um, Manny, my little partner up in my first Bigfoot real partner going out in the woods, he found three toed ones. Uh, he had a really scary encounter up there outside of Bluff Creek area, not too far away. And he was laying on his stomach in his tent, and it was in a closed campground for the winter. And the ground started shaking, vibrating as these heavy footfalls came. You know, the classic, it was like Jurassic Park when the T-Rex comes up. They said this thing walked up and huffed at his tent and then walked past it and kept going down. And he found the next day 13-inch plus, 13 to 14-inch, three-toed tracks. He said that they're perfectly shaped. And he said they were legit. He that he found the prints right when the thing walked. They weren't there when he went to bed. So I, that's the one thing that makes me, gives me pause about the three track. I mean, because I just always go, that's fake. But he found those three toed ones. And he said, I said, he sure wasn't just, you know, like you couldn't tell a toast. He said, no, it was a three toed foot. I don't know. I'd like to see that before I believe it, you know, just because biological pictures. Speaking. Oh, I'd lo- you have the pictures? No, I don't. He did. Oh, but he's passed now, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's dead now. I don't. Well, it'd be good to see those pictures. Yeah, because it might just be open to interpretation. Because um, no matter what, when you're tracking or looking at potential footprints in the ground, um, I don't care who you are, and probably the better educated in tracking you are, the more you would agree with this. It is an interpretation of what you see in the ground. Um, even if it is a footprint, it is still an interpretation of what you're seeing in the ground. And because that doesn't that doesn't mean it's not a footprint. Of course, it means that you're trying to read it essentially you're you're reading the sign that was left for you and you were interpreting it and putting meaning on it 
It doesn't mean that it's a lie or a hoax or anything, but it's an interpretation of the sign left behind. And um, I think it's fair to if somebody says these are three-toed primate tracks, I think it's at least fair to put that up, leave it open for another interpretation. Um, and I would love to take a look at those. So if those ever do surface, Bobo, I'd love to see them, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to it's, it's hard to conceptualize those could be legitimate and like actually be from a three-toed foot but yeah he was adamant about it he said when you saw him in the ground too this and that i was like there's no way you saw three-toed tracks he's like yes i did and he had he had photos so maybe those will turn up sometime i would i hope so i hope so yeah he did he he literally though dude filmed his life like 12 hours a day he had camcorder recording we rode his motorcycles anytime he drove he had a like a GoPro type setup of his before GoPros, but he had a small little like lipstick camera, you know, hooked up to his helmet on his motorcycle or his dashboard. Was, he always had video cameras running all, always, always, always. So to try to find something that he had would, would be just literally, it would, it, it would take you months and months and months. I mean, he had years and years of his life just on tape, even the most boring stuff he, he'd just keep. So I don't know if anyone's ever going to find it. I don't I've never even met the guy, unfortunately. Maybe you should. Do you have any contact for him or something? Yeah, um, his sister, but it's like I, I don't know who who'd go through all that stuff. I mean, he had so much, stuff, so much footage. It was insane. Well, I've got employees, you know, and I, I give them the grunt work nowadays. <laughs> I'll ask her. Yeah, they, here, listen to do. the seven hours of audio for me, would you please, Connor? And there's seven more from the later that day, and then you got to go to the next ten years worth too. Right. <laughs> well, I pay him salary, so I don't mind. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, all right. The next question is from Chad Wright. What do you consider to be the single most important Sasquatch-related event to occur in the U.S.? Ape Canyon, Jerry Cruz Discoveries, the PG film, or something else? It's got to be PG filming. That's the one thing. You talk to any American or basically any person in the country, they'll tell you, you know, if you ask about Jerry Crew, like, huh? You, you ask about Ape Canyon, like, what? But you say... You know the thing where you do this, you do the Bigfoot pose. They know exactly what it is. Yeah, I would. I'm in 100 percent agreement. It's the PG film um, because not only does that that really put Bigfoot on the map for the general public um, and start so many Bigfooters down their own individual paths as well, but now looking back at that event, you know, 50 something years ago, uh, it, it verifies so much of the other evidence that has been collected over the years. And, and, and uh, you know, th- these inferences made from the footprints, for example, like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the heels elongated and the ankles move, move forward on the foot 12 to 16%. And there's a flexibility in the mid part of the foot, all of which have been inferred from the footprints can be verified by looking at the PG film. So, um, and the footprints that were left at the PG site, of course, it has to be, I consider that part of the PG film, even though, you know, not very many of them were filmed. Just a little, little clip there, that, that three or four second clip that exists. Um, uh, they were, of course, filmed by Roger and Bobo. Nobody knows where that happened to the second role there. But um, that, th- all of that taken together is such a strong body of evidence. The way it, it verifies and is internally congruent with the, 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 the data set of the footprints and whatnot. Um, it, it is astonishingly strong. Um, and so I think that has to be the single most important Sasquatch related event. Yeah. No debate yeah. on that. I don't think. All right. Well, next question is from Joanna Dwyer. I kind of cringe at the 
word cryptid as I'm very evidence-based. I'm a very evidence-based logical person. I know by definition, Sasquatch are considered cryptid, but do you agree with that? I don't think an animal with plenty of evidence should be in the same category as some of those other bizarre and often supernatural creatures. So would you classify Bigfoot as a cryptid or as an animal? Both. Yeah, I think both. I mean, cryptid technically is a word for, you know, an animal that's not discovered, uh, a cryptic or cryptid animal, a cryptic animal, but I think another, cryptid would be the noun, cryptic would be the adjective. Um, cryptozoology, you know, the science of hidden animals, basically. Yeah, I think I think cryptid suit, suits well. See, I don't consider a lot of the other weird stuff to be cryptids. So I, I'm, I guess I'm doing it backwards. She is concerned about keeping, uh, having the word cryptid encompassed the idea of Sasquatch. And I, I think it suits Sasquatch well, but not a lot of the other stuff. So maybe that's yeah. just a different way to think of it, like a backwards sort of way to think of it. Yeah. It could, I mean, cryptid, I mean, cryptid just means hidden. It could be something that you found that, you know, they live in North America, but then you find one in South America. That's a cryptid. Yeah, doesn't, exactly. Doesn't mean it's a supernatural or mythological creature. Yeah, maybe, uh, Joanna, maybe a better way to do it is just throw out all those other things from that umbrella term of cryptid. You know, Mothman, whatever the, whatever that thing is or was or those things. I don't know how people think about that stuff. But um, maybe that does not belong in under the umbrella term cryptid. I agree, yeah, because that's more of a phenomena thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, look look who's here, Bobes. It's, it's Melissa. Ooh, Hi. nice. <laughs> what's up gorgeous hey, i don't know what you're saying that's okay she can't hear us but she has a microphone so i'm so happy to uh hear you you can't hear us you're probably happy not to hear Mal. us no i can hear him a little bit okay hi mel anyway sorry he says hi hi <laughs> okay kiss those polish uh, cheeks for me cliff i kiss those polish cheeks every night <laughs> every day if i can Okay. All right. So it looks like we're down to the last question here, Bobo. You want to take it? Sure. Robin Tucker asks, every description I hear from first-hand encounters indicates how very long Bigfoot arms are. To my eye, patty arms don't seem all that long. Am I missing something here? I, I get what, I get exactly what you're saying there. Um, Patty's arms don't look that long. And the only one I saw in the, in the daylight that I got a glimpse of had a really long arm, like longer in proportion than hers. Yeah, because what, what's her her percentage? Like, uh, it's only isn't hers only like seventeen percent longer than a human's, or fifteen percent longer, Cliff? Like, well, I don't know that number, but I do know that the intermembral index of the PG film subject of Patty um, is is between 0.8 and 0.9. And just for our listeners who may not know what that is, the intermembral index um, is a ratio between the leg length and the arm length. Okay, so in humans, um, and by the way, within a species that more or less stays approximately the same. Okay, um, species of primate, obviously. So um, for for humans, that in that index is about 0.75, if I remember right. So about seventy five percent. In other words, your arms are about seventy five percent the length of your legs. Um, in African apes, like gorillas and chimpanzees. Um, it, it is something like 1.08. So their arms are 1.08 times longer than their legs. And I think for orangutans, I think it's a little bit longer than that, if I remember right. But in, in, in the PG film, if you take that measurement, depending on what frame you use, 
her intramembral index comes out somewhere between 0.8 and 0.9. So between 80 to 90% the length of her legs. Um, and which is way beyond human, um, way beyond human measurements in any way. Um, because remember within a species, it holds more or less true. Now, Adding to that, well, okay, so their arms are longer in proportion to their legs than in humans. Now, they also have, a, I think their legs are a little bit shorter as, as well. I think that adds to that a little bit. And their, their shoulders are so much higher, which probably add to the, that as well. Um, but the thing is, Sasquatches, or at least Patty, when she walks, she leans forward about up to maybe 5%. She's leaning forward, and that leaning forward um, actually serves to make the arms look longer as well. So these these uh, reports where the arms are hanging down well below their knees, um, the Sasquatch might be leaning forward in, in its gait a little bit more than Patty was. So the, there's probably a couple different things going on here. They certainly have longer legs in proportion. I'm sorry, longer arms in proportion to their legs than the humans do, but shorter than the other than all the other apes. But they also might be leaning forward, and therefore that gives the illusion of their arms being longer when actually they're just hanging lower because where they attach is actually closer to the ground. So there's all that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I do get what they're saying. Like when you look at the PG film, like it doesn't jump out you like her arms are really that long. No, you know, I was looking at our, our life-size um, poster of Patty in the back room the other day, and I noticed that her, yeah, her, her hands are down more or less where they're supposed to be, like on a human but then I looked up and her shoulders are so much higher. And I think that's where that extra length comes from because yeah. they have such high, sh- high shoulders and, and the head's hanging a little bit lower than it would be in a human. True. True. So, yeah, I think there's a lot going on there. I think there's a lot going on there. Well, we've cleared people's questions up again one more month, Cliff. I hope we've put everybody's mind to rest. Hope you can rest better tonight because we've just done this for you. We are good people. We're the best. <laughs> all right. Actually, uh, we're, we're okay, and we're very, very lucky that all of our listeners like to listen. So we, we appreciate all of you. We're, our listeners are the best. We're just yeah. second best. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you know we're going to do these about once a month. We're trying to do Q&As about once a month right now. If you have questions um, you'd like Bobo and I to answer, please email them to us. And the best way to do that is go to our website, bigfootofbeyondpodcast.com. And then at the top in the menu there, there there's something that says contact. That email goes right to our producers and, um, and sometimes make it to us. But that's the best way to uh, offer a question to us. So go ahead and um, go to bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com, hit the contact button in the menu, and then submit your questions. And maybe, you know, maybe we'll answer yours next month. We enjoy doing these. I hope you enjoy listening to them as well. And um, other than that, Bobes, maybe yeah, that's if, it for the next month, huh? If you have a Bigfoot setting or any kind of cryptid or paranormal uh, anything weird you got that's a true story, we want to hear that too. Especially, we're always looking for good Bigfoot accounts. So if you got one of those, lay it on us. Yeah, and of course, one more, uh, I'll shake my tin can here. Um, if you have anything that you'd like to donate to the North American Bigfoot Center, whether it's newspaper clippings or maybe a letter or something that was received in the past, some audio recordings of witnesses, um, consider doing that. We'll put it in a place of honor. We'll add it to the archives. Um, it'll be used for future education. Um, NorthAmericanBigfootCenter.com. And there you go. Yeah, that's a, that is a worthy uh, cause to donate to. I've given a few objects to that place. Yes, you have. And we really appreciate it, Bubs. Yeah, it's a good place to go. I mean, because you guys actually will take care of it and archive it and cherish it. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. All right, folks, we know what to do now. Hit like, hit share, spread the word of the Bigfoot and Beyond podcast. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 